The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening and welcome to the virtual Trinity Longroom Hub here in Dublin and to our Behind the Headlines on Plagues and Pandemics. A very warm welcome to our distinguished panellists and to those of you who are joining us uh, via a Zoom. Over 100 of you are in our virtual uh, uh, lecture theatre. But many others are also joining via our Facebook page and through the Irish Central Channel. So thank you for coming. And as I say, you're all very, very welcome. These are extraordinary times. Ireland, Europe and much of the world is in lockdown as we scramble to get ahead of the coronavirus. On the 29th of February, we had our first case here in Ireland of COVID-19. And today, 26 days later, there are over 1,500 cases as we really begin to batten down the hatches uh, uh, in preparation for a surge in the coming days. Citizens here in Ireland and around the world are doing all they can at this moment in crisis. And we're deeply grateful to everyone across all sectors, people who are putting literally their lives on the line in this moment of crisis. We here in the universities uh, want to play our part too, and this brings me to our discussion this evening. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. For those of you who don't know the Trinity Longroom Hub, just let me introduce it very, very quickly. Basically, we do three things in the hub. The th first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we do is facilitate conversations across all disciplines because we really believe that the magic happens when the disciplines uh, collide and I think we're going to have a fabulous example of that here this evening. The third thing we do is public humanities. We believe passionately of the importance of taking the learnings from the universities to widest possible audiences and again I hope this evening is a great example of this and that public humanities program only happens thanks to the generosity of the Neil family and I want to acknowledge that and especially uh, this year because 2020 marks the 10th anniversary of the opening of the wonderful Trinity Longroom Hub building uh, in Front Square so it's a celebratory year for us and we had a fabulous event uh, back in February uh, uh, which began we hoped a year of celebrations little did we think that only a couple of weeks later uh, we would be facing a crisis uh, such as none of us have ever encountered uh, before. Many of you will be familiar with our behind the headlines where we invite experts to draw on the long-term perspectives of uh, arts and humanities research as they discuss a major issue that is in the headlines. Uh, and again, I want to thank the John Pollard Foundation and Stephen Vernon, who've been fabulous supporters of Behind the Headlines. Tonight, uh, we're doing our first Behind the Headlines virtually. Uh, every other time we've run one, uh, it's been in Trinity, usually in the Edmund Burke, where we've had up to 400 attendees. 
Uh, and uh, uh, obviously we're very dependent on technology tonight. I hope this is working. Um, uh, uh, we still have a fourth panelist who's trying to join us. So just at the moment, we've got three out of four, but I'm sure uh, uh, Ida will be with us in, in just a minute. Because we're doing it virtually, we've had to modify our format a little bit. Um, each of our speakers though will have their nine minutes and um, we appreciate that nine minutes goes very quickly. The advantage of doing it virtually is that we can mute our speakers after nine minutes. And I'm joking because I know all of our speakers are absolute pros and they're going to stick uh, uh, to their time. As always, we want to invite you, our audience, to submit questions. Uh, those of you who are joining us via Zoom will be able to use the Q&A function on your screen and we'll select as many as we can and I'll ask the questions for you. Um, uh, those of you listening on Facebook can also uh, send in a question in the comments section and we'll try and monitor these and again ask as many questions as time allows. The rules are the same for the questions, please keep them clear and concise but do give us your name and uh, any relevant information. You might be a health worker or a Trinity graduate or uh, uh, somebody who has particular expertise uh, on uh, the coronavirus. As usual, we'll be tweeting uh, using the handle at TLRHub uh, and the hashtag HubMatters. So it's lovely if everybody could also join us on social media. We might even trend this evening. Before I introduce the speakers, um, I also just want to say we're trying for the first time uh, uh, to use a poll this evening. So hopefully it's on your screen, certainly anybody who's joining by Zoom. We're curious to learn how many of you have or may know of family members that were affected or died as a result of the influenza epidemic of at 1918, at 1919, more commonly known, though mistakenly known, as the Spanish flu. We'll be coming back to the Spanish flu in a moment, but it's lovely if you could just simply take a moment uh, to answer that poll and we'll share the results later this evening. So we have four amazing speakers this evening, and I hope four, but I can only see three. <laughs> and given that our first speaker uh, was Ida Milne, and she was going to be the first speaker tonight, um, I think we're going to have to change uh, the order uh, a little bit, simply because it doesn't look as if uh, we've been able to link our, uh, uh, Ida in. So what I'm going to do instead is start with Brandon O'Connell, who is uh, in our uh, uh, virtual room. Uh, Brendan is in Trinity School of English, where he works on medieval literature. He's currently teaching on medieval literary responses to the Black Death, um, and obviously we'll turn to that shortly. Our second speaker this evening is Jacob Erickson. He's a professor of theological ethics in Trinity's School of Religion. He's a frequent contributor to debates on environmental uh, ethics and queer uh, theologies. And his current work sees him writing about theology in times of plague. So it couldn't again be more relevant to our discussion uh, this evening. Our third speaker this evening is an immunologist uh, from uh, Trinity School of Biochemistry and Immunology, Luke O'Neill. And Luke needs uh, 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 no uh, uh, introduction from me. Now, 
he's still with us. For a second, I thought I'd lost you there, Luke. Luke is a passionate public commentator on everything to do with science, and his recent contributions to media and public debate have focused on measures to tackle the spread of uh, COVID-19 in Ireland. Our fourth speaker this evening, who I hope will still be able to join us, and I'm going to introduce her anyway, is uh, uh, Ida Milne, who teaches uh, European history at Carlo College and is a visiting fellow at Trinity's School of Histories and Humanities, where she did her PhD in the history department on the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic which killed who knows how many, certainly up to 100 million people globally, and certainly more than 200,000 in Ireland. Uh, Ida's fabulous book, Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, was published uh, by Manchester University Press in 2018, and it's an absolute cracker. So uh, I, I'll encourage everybody uh, to buy uh, Ida's book, and hopefully we will hear uh, from Ida. But given uh, that uh, she still isn't with us, or I can't see her virtually, we are going to hand over now to uh, Brendan, who will kick off the uh, discussion, and then we'll go straight to Jake, straight to Luke, and hopefully then straight to Ida. So Brendan, over to you. Hey. Hi, thanks Jane. Thanks very much for uh, that. I hope everyone can um, hear me. Um, so to start, I suppose, with some of the, the basics, the uh, 14th century Black Death was the most lethal uh, pandemic in history. It's commonly estimated that close to half the population of England died in the first outbreak in the late 1340s, while the global death toll is estimated in raw numbers that are unimaginable in our world, uh, let alone a world whose population was a mere fraction of ours. The plague appears to have first emerged in the Tibetan Plateau before spreading along the Silk Road. In 1346, it reached the port town of Kaffa and spread from there on Venetian and Genoese trading ships. Caused by the Yersinia pestis bacillus and transmitted in the fleas of rodents, the plague manifested in a number of forms. Most famously, the bubonic plague caused by flea bites infected the lymphatic system and led to swellings in the groin, armpit or neck. Much more transmissible, however, was the pneumonic form of plague, which led to persistent coughing and spitting up of blood and sputum. In popular culture, the Black Death is often treated as an example of ways in which medieval people seem strangely different uh, from people now. And it's true that much of the evidence bears this out. The sources tell of university men seeking answers in the conjunctions of the stars, doctors prescribing misguided cures, and a widespread belief that the plague was the wrath of God against a sinful people. But looking afresh at Rosemary Horrocks' celebrated source book, source book on the, the Black Death, I'm struck by the many similarities. Then, as now, physicians race to understand the causes of the disease and its mode of transmission. Acting on such advice, officials in some regions issued ordinances, placing restrictions on the movement of people and the trade of goods. Guidance was issued on who was permitted to attend funerals. Those who'd had close contact with the dying were required to quarantine themselves, sometimes for, for up to 10 days. 
recognizable too, I think, is a fear um, that can lead not only to laudable displays of solidarity, but ugly manifestations of intolerance as people look for someone to blame. Then and now, witnessing a rapidly transmissible and lethal illness reminds us that the profound interconnectedness of human beings is a source of fragility and vulnerability, but also resilience and strength. Literary sources bear witness to these qualities in powerful ways. The most famous literary account of the plague in Boccaccio's Decameron narrates the horrific sufferings endured in Florence before moving on to describe a band of 10 young people who escaped to the countryside where they passed the time telling stories to distract themselves. Um, tomorrow, by the way, Daisy Black of the, the University of Wolverhampton will begin hosting a, a modern Decameron story festival online on, on Facebook, which uh, people might want to check out. In an English context, um, we might talk about Chaucer's Pardoner's Tale, in which three reckless young revelers, drinking heedlessly in a tavern during a time of pestilence, resolve to seek out death and kill him, only to die themselves, not of plague, but when their own greed leads them to betray and murder each other. The Pardoner's message is that, however terrible the pestilence, human vice is the real disease, uh, but Chaucer complicates the picture by exposing in his depiction of the pardoner the corruption of moral centurions who exploit fear for financial gain. Chaucer, I think, understood that one of the most attractive and dangerous aspects of literary responses to pestilence is the poet's tendency to endow it with a meaning. It may seem strange to say at a time when we're all overwhelmed by wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the coronavirus, but one of the most striking aspects about the historical and literary records of pandemics is the unexpected silences, the absences that appear at just the moment where we might expect some explicit acknowledgement of a cataclysm that had only just recently passed. In some ways, these absences are unsurprising, we might interpret them as the consequence of witnessing a trauma that is too great to comprehend, or simply the wearied exhaustion of those who want nothing more uh, than to get back to normal. In the time I have left, I want to talk about one such silence, a poem that bears witness to the horrors of the Black Death without ever mentioning it. The poem is called Cleanness and is by the same author as the masterpieces Pearl and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. As it happens, I'm teaching it uh, this week in my optional class on surviving trauma in the Middle Ages, in which we explore medieval literary responses to trauma and how they represent the, the processes of survival. Cleanness is a homiletic poem modeled on the medieval sermon, which narrates three biblical stories, uh, Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the fall of Belshazzar. As David Coley has demonstrated, however, the poem is haunted by the memory of the Black Death. The poet's rhetoric is startlingly close to that of plague sermons, such as one by Thomas Brinton, lamenting that the evils of the present age are greater than the time of Noah, and that the sin of the Sodomites prevails beyond measure. The poet's disgust at sinful priests handling the Eucharist 
which I used to read in purely kind of abstract uh, terms, looks to me now to express nothing less than a horror of contagion. The poem imagines a God who is vengeful and angry, but above all fastidious, even squeamish, and, and the poem uses the word uh, squeamish, in his abhorrence of filth of every kind. The poem stimulates a visceral disgust at uncleanness that conflates physical and spiritual senses of filth and transforms hygiene into a moral imperative. The abjection of what is impure further inspires hostility to those perceived as transgressive of social and religious norms. Though this poem does not display the virulent anti-Semitism that characterized many of the ugliest responses to the plague, it bears witness to the desire to place blame on certain groups, which finds uncomfortable echoes today. The poem, however, is not entirely devoid of compassion for those who die. The victims of the flood are depicted with surprising tenderness, clinging to each other in their final moments. The poet, I think, knows very well that he's trying to make sense of death on a massive scale, but that these deaths touch people in intimate ways. Coley, indeed, suggests that another work by the cleanest poet was inspired by the death of the poet's young daughter during an outbreak of plague, the tender and moving poem, Pearl. In cleanness, however, the tone is urgent and fierce. The poet seems to identify with the prophet Daniel, who has witnessed one cataclysm and prophecies another. In our present moment, we look back to the so-called Spanish flu, the 1918-19 pandemic, and to the Black Death for lessons. But at the time of the Black Death, the cleanest poet could imagine no precedent other than the plagues and mass deaths of the Bible, and cries out to the future with the moral imperative of the survivor. We may not agree with his lessons, but when we get through the present crisis, we will have to ask ourselves what lessons we want to leave behind for those future generations who will look back to us in their time of need to understand how we face this crisis and how we survive. Thank you. I was going to say, Jake, straight over to you. Don't wait for me. But you need to be unmuted. Do, do there we you? are. Oh, yep. sorry. That was yep. these technical issues. Thank you so much, Brendan. That was absolutely amazing. Straight, and then we'll go straight into Luke. Hopefully, we, 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 we'll get the muting bit right. So Great. thank you very much, Jake. Yeah, thanks all. And thanks all for being with us uh, virtually tonight. Um, like moths to a flame, Plagues, pandemics, and pestilence have long, extravagant religious and theological histories. We've just heard some of them. The writer of the biblical book of Exodus meditates on the shock and awe plagues that range from locusts to the death of firstborn sons that lead to the first Passover. And John of Patmos, the writer of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John, as it's often called, points to a host of deadly plagues from sores to darkness to unseemly weather. Scripts uh, like these do really well with Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, the end of the world arrives from real world disease and earthly danger to otherworldly outbreaks of zombies and alien invaders. 
a meager group of survivors make their way on a disease-ridden post-apocalyptic landscape. And these stories in their extremity often tell us something about our humanity, our ethical behaviors and limits, our beliefs, our faiths, our sense of community and trust. And from Exodus to the historical examples that we're raising tonight to TV series like The Walking Dead, we devour these stories and ask what the world might be like or what we might do under similar circumstances. Folks in the present moment, it seems to me, seem to be eating these stories up. Uh, apocalyptic pandemic movies such as Outbreak, Contagion, 12 Monkeys, and others were all trending on online streaming platforms in the last few weeks as awareness of the coronavirus grew. And apocalypse memes and anxieties seem everywhere. Um, if you Google the word apocalypse, um, uh, and look at the latest news articles, uh, there are pages that use that word. Uh, scholars of religion and theology like myself would tell you to notice how stories of apocalypse never actually really come to a complete conclusion. Apocalypses as literary genres never really talk about the end of it all or the end of the world, and the world really never comes to a complete destruction in them. There's always a carrying on of the story. There's another story in life to be explored after the fact. The stories are written for us, stories in the wake of things that help us try to get meaning from. Apocalypso in Greek literally means an uncovering, a disclosure. And apocalypses often attempt to show something hidden and working behind the scenes. They attempt to uncover some kind of economic, political, or deeper truths about ourselves and our society in moments of crisis. The book of Revelation is a good example, and it's often considered that it's anti-Roman imperial literature facing off against an empire that conquered as much as it created. The text is a critique of the violence of Roman political power from the margins of the first or about century. Apocalypses like to ask what if with a bit of gratuitous pyrotechnics. Uh, in her feminist guide to the end of the world, my mentor and theologian Catherine Keller notes that real and fictive apocalypses actually happen now and then, um, in every sense of that phrase, now and then where anxieties in the present are amplified by past apocalyptic scripts and that real life apocalypses from plague to other things have already happened and do happen now and then in history. Um, our experience here is new, but also not. One only has to look at the Black Death or Spanish flu as we have, look at plagues spread by the violence of settler colonialism that devastated Native American communities in North America, or look at the ways that homophobia shaped the responses to the spread of HIV AIDS. Look to the marginalized in any society and you'll find violent and tragic forms of world ending already in our midst. Worlds made invisible by society are often destroyed or ignored. The new media theorist John Durham Peters writes that death is the great revealer of infrastructures. Infrastructures from the material and political arrangements society makes about who matters and who has value and to the political structures that render people vulnerable to structures of prejudice uh, that all fall along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability. Over the last few weeks, adapting to our new context has meant a revelation of infrastructures of the physical world and our bodily life together and the interconnected planet that we're living in. Tensions in and overtaxed healthcare systems, government and travel and research reveal staff and shortages of resources. 
Crises of loneliness and isolation among elderly are highlighted. Exclusions of people with disabilities are accentuated and expectations of productive work that our economic systems press upon us and our sense of meaning are stretched thin. Families with children have to manage work and childcare simultaneously and crises of homelessness and housing intensify and the list goes on. We may not be living in the end of the world, but we're potentially in this moment, I think, experiencing an apocalypse of a certain way of living, perhaps, an apocalypse of business as usual. Responding to these vulnerabilities with supply and social distancing and mutual care is a necessity. The tragedy is real here. Lives are disrupted and will actually bury members of our communities in ways that are too soon. That's a reality. But I've been in awe of healthcare's and social workers and religious leaders, especially in my field, who've been thinking about how their rich forms of communal connection that already exist from celebration to grieving might occur in new and creative ways, whether it be through the media that we're using at this very moment or through other means. Uh, my friends held a surprise birthday party over Zoom for my uh, friend back in the States earlier this week. Uh, we tend to think of apocalyptic moments with a flash and a bang, but rarely do such moments happen as clearly defined events. They often move slowly with a sense that the world is both utterly new and also utterly in slow motion, and you may experience this in social distancing or at home. The temptation will be for many of us uh, will be to ask what does it take to get to some semblance of ethical normalcy? Um, and we'll experience certain forms of recovery fatigue that recovery is taking too long or isn't complete enough. But I'm wondering if uh, normalcy shouldn't in fact be the goal. Normal wasn't good for everyone. And a crisis like this gives us the odd opportunity, as tragic as it is, to focus on those places of vulnerability and ask how we can do better for one another where we are. Crisis moments, some have argued, are precisely the moments when creative, ethical, and political thinking, the arts and humanities especially, are needed the most. Uh, exploitative practices and cultural habits often intensify in moments of crisis, from xenophobia to the Lieutenant Governor of Texas this week saying that grandparents would gladly be willing to sacrifice themselves to the economy, um, to in special forms of religious bigotry, uh, a number of cardinals and religious leaders attacking LGBTQ people in the midst of the current crisis. Counter-apocalyptic creativities are needed with rich wisdom, forms of knowledge sharing, alternative forms of caring and exchange, communal support, inclusive political work, and a recognition that choosing between our humanity ethically and something nebulous of the economy is a self-destructive choice. It's not an either or. Climate change, for me especially, still the problem of our planetary life together is still here and still on the horizon. And we need to think wisely about interconnection and flourishing together here. Over the last few days, I've been rereading uh, 1527 treaties from the German reformer Martin Luther, uh, a letter that he wrote in response to another clergy member asking for guidance during moments of plague in his home, Wittenberg. Indications are that rich were fleeing, doctors were refusing to care for patients, and priests complicatedly were refusing to offer last rites or care for their communities. And Luther in his response emphasizes the need for those in places of authority and care uh, to be supported, to be present and to remain for those under their care. For civil servants to be wise about their exposure and for the need to be present 
even in the midst of what he called the rumor of death. Uh, we are mutually bound to one another, he wrote. And he continued, I'll quote this and come to an end. Um, he said that I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he shall surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me. So I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. It seems to me that in an apocalyptic kind of moment like this, Luther understood the nuances of social distancing well, but also the need for deep social connection, ethical care in a moment like this one, not necessarily business as usual, and some, some things can't continue on as usual, but highlighting extraordinary creative forms of care, creating new forms of connection for relationships that are already present and ask what kind of future we want to live into beyond the revelations of today's news. Thank you, Jake. Luke. Thank you, Jake. Yeah, great to be here, Jane. Thanks very much for the invitation. Delighted to take part, of course, as ever. What a fantastic topic, let's face it. And so just listening to the, the first two speakers, I'm learning new stuff as well and different approaches to this crisis that we all find ourselves in. And I might start with, that was an incredible quote from Martin Luther, Jake, there, because nothing has changed since his time, has it? I mean, the, the first point I'd like to make is our response to this current pandemic is no different to what it would have been two, three, four hundred years ago. The main response is quarantine, you know. And remember, those people all those years ago didn't know what a virus was or a bacteria, knew nothing about the immune system. And yet the main recommendation through hundreds of years was isolate people who are infected, cut them off, you know. And in medieval times, as, as you guys well know, very radical things were happening to cut people off and stop them, you know, I guess, mixing with other people because they knew this was contagious. They, it was always known that, you know, basic observation told us one person has the disease and can spread it to another person. And that's been known for thousands of years, really. So what strikes me is we think we're so smart, us human beings. And in spite of all this fantastic immunology and virology and medicine, say, since the 1918 pandemic, nothing really has changed in terms of how we're handling this particular virus, which is a bit sobering, you know. And all that knowledge and all that fantastic information, one question is, how can we make that useful now? And how can we make a difference then to people? And I'm going to touch on that a bit as I go through it, I guess. Um, the other thing to say is, of course, that the history of immunology is the history of infection, remember. And the word immunitas, in case, people, in case people don't know where that word came from, that was coined in the 1700s because it was known that if you had a disease like smallpox and you survived it, you didn't get the disease again. You were exempt from getting smallpox a second time. And the word immunitas is from ancient Rome. It was a term that meant exemption from paying tax so when someone came back from fighting for the Roman army and came back to Rome, they were given exemption from tax, they were given immunitas. So the word immunitas comes from this idea of exemption from getting a disease a second time. Um, the second piece of history I might tell you about, of course, is real immunology begins with smallpox because in 1796, Edward Jenner performs the first vaccination. It was known anecdotally that milkmaids didn't get smallpox and some clever scientists wondered why is that? And then they realized that milkmaids often get cowpox, which is a similar virus, as we now know. They didn't know at the time about viruses, of course. Uh, but they knew that if you had the cowpox, it protected you against smallpox for some magical 
unknown reason. And Jenner then uses cowpox on a boy called James Phipps, and then amazingly then tries to give the boy smallpox. The ethics of this would be highly questionable nowadays. Um, and the boy didn't get smallpox. He was protected from cowpox. And, and of course, that was a fantastic discovery because in those times, smallpox was the scourge of humanity. Uh, one in three people got it. Of those one in three, a third died for definite, a third were left disfigured, and a third recovered. And the ones who were recovered are often then the ones who would treat the ones who were infected. So, so, so vaccination begins with Jenner. The word vaccine, of course, comes from cow, because it was cowpox that was used. A little bit of history for you there, where the word vaccination comes from. And then much of immunology, since Jenner was to explain in scientific terms how a vaccine works, and of course, all this triumph of science that's happened since then, and the discovery of all these intricate parts of the immune system and how they work and what they do and all the different cell types and molecules, that, that's immunology, that the triumph of that science has been clear since then. So, so really we are depending on, on viruses in many ways to explain much about the immune system. The other huge disease that really allowed immunology to go up a log order, you might say, was HIV. And I remember vividly when I began as an immunologist in 1982-83 when this disease began, it was an absolute horror. All these gay men were coming down with these horrible infections and nobody knew why. And then finally, of course, it was realized it was a blood-borne disease. You catch it from blood and you can get blood from a blood transfusion. You can get blood from sexual practices, obviously. You can get blood if you're a hemophiliac and then you get HIV. And, and immunologists worked on that in huge detail. And much of what we discovered about T cells, for example, which is a very important part of the immune system, came from HIV research. So somewhat paradoxically, um, studies into these infectious diseases gives us huge insights into the inner workings of the immune system. And that, that's one um, benefit from all this. Now let's move on now to the, uh, the, the main meat of the matter, which is the current pandemic that's afflicting the world. And a couple of things strike me about this. Again, we should always be humble. Here is a tiny, tiny thing. 500 million viral particles for SARS-CoV-2, that's the name of the virus, fit on the end of the dot at the end of a sentence. And yet this tiny thing is wreaking havoc all over the world in spite of all this alleged knowledge that we have. Now, um, it's very simple in a way. Viruses are, have no value to humanity at all. Peter Medawar, one of our great immunologists, he won the Nobel Prize for immunology for work on transplantation. He had a great phrase. He said, a virus is a new nucleic acid wrapped up in bad news, is how he described it. And they bring no benefits to humanity. They're little tiny things. They've got nucleic acid in their middle. That's the recipe to make another virus, surrounded by a fatty coat. And in that coat, there's various proteins studded. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's got nine proteins. So we know an awful lot about what this virus is and what it looks like. Now remember, when the 1918 flu pandemic happened, viruses had not been discovered. They weren't discovered until the 1930s when somebody invented an electron microscope because they're so small, a special microscope had to be invented to see the damn things. And then we saw the first virus that was seen was a plant virus. The first one that affects humans was the polio virus in 1948. Somebody saw that with their bare eyes for the first time using a microscope because they were so, so tiny. This electron microscope had to be invented. And then we began to understand the biochemistry of them, what they're made of and how they work. Now, now with SARS-CoV-2, of course, it's a part of this family of viruses called coronaviruses, as I'm sure you all know by now. Of course, by the way, I'm in demand by everybody. Everybody wants to talk to me suddenly. In the old days, I'd be at a party and someone would ask me what I do and their eyes would glaze over in about 10 seconds. Nowadays, they want to know more and more about viruses and the immune system. And, and, and the coronavirus family is now our focus. There's seven of them. Uh, four of them cause the common cold. 
and as some of you may know, there used to be a coal research unit in the UK. Uh, it was shut down about 10 years ago. I'm regretting that now, of course, because four of these coronaviruses cause regular colds and, and then we get over a cold quite effectively, you know. So much of what we know about SARS-CoV-2 is based on studies on the cold viruses. And then of course, SARS itself and MERS, they, they were new viruses that came along in 2003. SARS itself emerges. Those two turned out to be pretty, um, shall we say, less common. They were able to put a lid on them more quickly. SARS was a less dangerous virus than SARS-CoV-2. MERS was much more dangerous, 35% mortality. But it was different to SARS-CoV-2 because within one or two days, you can isolate people quickly. The challenge of SARS-CoV-2, of course, is you can carry that virus for seven days without symptoms and be infectious. And therefore, it's very hard to get put a lid in that as quickly as they did with SARS and MERS. Now, what we also know is um, a lot about how the immune system reacts to it from these previous viruses that have been studied, of course. And the good news is uh, you will get a strong antibody response to this virus. Now, that means the prospect of a vaccine then is on the horizon because an antibody will neutralize the virus. This isn't the case with HIV where antibodies aren't that good at blocking HIV, for instance. So it's been very hard to get a vaccine for HIV. But at least with SARS-CoV-2, we know it's possible to vaccinate. And again, the, the rapid sort of work that's been done is unbelievable. And it, it, uh, it's a brand new virus, only, only discovered in December. And of course, it came from bats. We know that as well. It's probably a hybrid of a coronavirus, a SARS subspecies that was in a pangolin, which is a, a spiny anteater, and a bat and two viruses got together from that, that species to form this new nasty brand new virus. And of course, when a new virus appears, nobody has any protection against it. And that's why it spread. And that's why it's so contagious. And you see all these cases. Um, and that's, that's the danger of it because it's a brand new virus. Now, gradually, we will see immunity emerge, of course. And the history of life on Earth, in many ways, is the immune system battling pathogens. And the immune system that we have in our bodies is a result of evolution where the, survive, the ones who survived were able to fight this virus. Now, when we see the virus in an action, we know an awful lot about it now in the last month or two, how it infects cells. And it, it's got a spike protein on its surface, which locks on to a protein on a lung cell called ACE2. Now, of course, the terms are always difficult to get our heads around, but, but the spike latches onto ACE2. That's like a key going in a lock. The door opens, the virus goes inside the lung cell, and then it replicates and then spreads onto another cell. And then the trouble is, as it does that, it kills the cell it infects, and that begins the inflammatory process. And some of the symptoms happen because it's killing cells as, as it leads them in a way. And then, of course, many people, 80%, will fight the virus, and their immune system kicks in, clears the virus from your body. It's marvelous. You make antibodies, they neutralize the virus. You get what's called a T-cell response to kill the virally infected cell. And hey, presto, 80% get better. And many, we now know, actually, and every day this is changing, but close clinical analysis tells us about a third of those 80% have very few symptoms. They've got a very mild disease. A third have a slightly more troublesome cold flu type thing. And a third get quite a, quite a severe flu, have to be in bed for a day or two. They might get fatigue, they get a temperature, but they fight it and they get over it. The trouble is the 15% then who get a very severe course. And they're a major focus for many of us. And my own lab, for instance, is working on that part of it because the ones who don't do well get a massive inflammatory reaction in their lungs to the virus. And that inflammation is your own immune system turning on yourself now, it goes out of control. And it goes out of control because there's too much virus in your system. 
that's one reason anyway. There's also some people are more susceptible for some reason. Then we get this big inflammatory reaction. And my lab at the moment are collaborating with a group in Holland uh, to work on new anti-inflammatory approaches to dampen down this inflammation and protect the lungs in this situation. And we know an awful lot about that process, actually, and new drugs will emerge. So even though the response was medieval in terms of quarantine, the next phase is 21st century because we're able to use all this science now to stop inflammation in the lungs, which is my own area. Secondly, of course, to make a vaccine. There are 35 separate companies now racing to make a vaccine. I've never seen such activity and such speed. It's still a year away for various reasons. It takes a long time for safety and efficacy. That's the second thing that's being done. The third thing that's being done is we can take antibodies from people who've survived the virus and they themselves can be drugs because you can give those to other people. And those viruses, uh, antibodies protect people. The first people you give that to, by the way, is the health workers because you, want, you don't want them getting infected because they're getting exposed. And that antibody therapy is much faster as an approach uh, in terms of development. So we're talking about September to see antibody-based approaches. And then the last bit of technology, which is fantastic, is we know so much about these viruses. Uh, we know all about how they replicate. And you can now fire drugs at the virus. And the big hope is a drug called resdemivir, which was developed against Ebola, actually. And Ebola is a bit like SARS-CoV-2. It's an RNA virus. So they tried it against Ebola and this worked. And now they have evidence in test tubes, it's killing the virus. And there are now four clinical trials running at the moment. Uh, they will read out mid to late April. This is a direct antiviral drug that will kill the virus on contact. That needed an awful lot of science and technology to discuss, discuss the, the, discover the process of replication, to go after key enzymes in that replication process. And even today in science, there was a great paper on another part of the replication process being targetable by another drug. So, so the effort that's going into this, including by Irish scientists in many cases, by the way, is massive. And our, our view would be it's like shots on goal. Uh, there may be as many as 80 different approaches being taken now. Surely one of them is going to work. That's the hope because of all this great technology that we have behind us. So again, even though our, our initial response to this virus has been medieval in the sense that the main response is what we call social distancing. It used to be called quarantine. It's a new fancy word now. Keep people away from each other, which is exactly the way to stop it spreading. And of course, that's the sensible thing to do. The next phase will be very much 21st century based on all this fantastic knowledge that we have, driven by scientists working over the past 30, 40 years, of course, to give us this base of knowledge to use now in our, our, our efforts to design vaccines or drugs that will stop the damage that this, that this virus is causing. So we've gone from, from a rather medieval approach, hopefully, up to all this fantastic science that's happened because of the great advances in fields like immunology and virology. So we're optimistic we will see progress in relation to these different developments. Thank you very much, Luke. Um, fabulous. Uh, Ida, welcome. Great to see you. Um, my work focuses suppose, on, on the societal impacts of the 1918-1919 flu pandemic and I've been really watching, enthralled and increasingly worried as the Wuhan crisis bega began to emerge, at, emerge in late December. Um, so while it's a different disease, as Luke has been explaining, many of the impacts, including the fear of the unknown and of things that we can't control and that it was de defying in what in 1918 was then seen as the brilliance of modern uh, medicine. This is something that we, we can engage with today as well. 
um, hopefully we will be a lot more successful this time around. The 1918-19 influenza pandemic, it's the biggest killing influenza uh, pandemic the world has ever known. Um, there's usually been about um, one every 30 years since the 1550s. And the big one, uh, until the, the 20th century, when they began to come further apart then, it's the big one against which emerging infectious disease threats are uh, measured against. Uh, there was no cure. Doctors threw everything in their medical bag at it. Um, whiskey and uh, brandy were one of the main things that they, they tried to treat people with at it then because at least they could relieve the symptoms. But they also gave it very strange things um, uh, like strychnine and uh, gargles of creosote and all sorts of things just to try and see something that would work. Um, there were vaccines being made, but of course, then, as Luke said, you know, then they understood uh, influenza to be a bacteria. So the, ba the vaccines were made from bacteria and probably might have prevented uh, some, um, Luke would know this better than I, some um, bacterial infections that would be associated with it would have, would, would have done nothing against flu. And anyway, they gave them, them to the people who were already sick with the disease. That was the way practice was done at the time. Upwards of 50 million people were killed in the world. We'll never quite know because um, death certification wasn't very robust in some parts of the world and places like Russia were going through a revolution and record keeping breaks down at times like that. Um, somewhere between one-fifth and half of the planet were infected. Um, there were 23,000 Irish dead when you include associated pneumonias. About 800,000 on this island, I've estimated, uh, with the help of Dr. Anthony Kinsley, a medical statistician, um, might have caught it. That would be about one-fifth of the Irish population. And again, like today, most of them would have been quite mild cases, but for those who were very ill, the, the descriptions are, are horrible of their lungs filling with um, all sorts of things which I don't know how to describe clinically, but, but that the, the alveoli would fill up with all this gunk and uh, people wouldn't be able to breathe and, and they turned purple, which was a very scary feature because their, their blood uh, couldn't be oxygenated because their bodies weren't working properly. Um, it came at a time when new bacteriological methods seemed to be helping the constant fight against infectious disease. And therefore, it punctured doctors' confidence in their own tools. Um, I think we are going to see enormous change coming from this and that medicine is going to really show off in what we're seeing at the moment. We just, how quickly it can show off is the question. Uh, flu was then, um, as I said, understood to be caused by a bacteria rather than a virus. Um, it killed a cohort of the population not usually affected uh, by seasonal pneumonia, young, strong adults. Uh, and the picture that emerged first of all from Wuhan was that it was affecting uh, older people, uh, but now it seems to be affecting the younger people quite badly as well. Uh, it also affected the very young, who were then a very, very vulnerable sector of the Irish population. About 20% of the deaths each year on this island in the 1910s, that would have been about 70,000 deaths, were of children under the age of five. They died from all sorts of reasons, but many of them were infectious diseases like uh, tuberculosis, like measles, like scarlet fever, um, uh, and, and diseases like that. Um, 
so I think that's a key insight and as in to one of the reasons why it's not remembered because death from infectious disease was so very common that it impacted on most families. We live in a very different world today. I was thinking about that during the week, you know, that in the Ireland of the 1910s, how would we hand wash at the rate uh, that we have to, we're advised to do so today if we lived in a tenement with no running water or do we have to carry a bucket up upstairs uh, to, to, with filled with water to do what we need to do in, in our households to try and stay clean. So it also took this world by surprise because many of us thought that healthcare and environment, better homes, better living conditions, uh, better conditions particularly for the poor where they have supports, income supports and things like that, had improved to the point where what happened in 1918, 1919 couldn't happen to the same extent. Uh, again, and we really have to work to make sure that it doesn't again in the future. As it passed through entire towns and villages would go silent. Uh, there was no formal quarantine in, in 1918, which is really surprising given what Lucas has spoken about, about how well-known quarantine was throughout history for, for, for hundreds of years. Uh, people stayed at home uh, either because um, they had the disease, whole families would be laid down at, it at the same time, or because they were afraid of catching it. So it was like a self-imposed quarantine rather than an official one. Uh, shops suffered from lack of football fall as well as from staff going ill. They struggled to keep going uh, because they wouldn't have had, I suppose, bank loans at the same rate as we'd have today. Hospitals were completely overwhelmed. I've looked at most of the hospital available hospital records. They turned over most of their wards to treating flu patients and just kept one or two, uh, a male and a female uh, wards for sur surgery us usually. Around the country, when you'd see really uh, in the areas where it was worst impacted and when it was impacting, uh, voluntary groups would set up things like soup kitchens and people would distribute food to the very ill. There was also community nursing schemes in, in some areas, like, for example, Dundalk, which was really badly affected, uh, where they trained up what they called young girls from the town uh, in rudimentary nursing skills. So they'd know how to, to, to look after their families and neighbours. An awful lot of neighbours helping neighbours happened because the whole system was so overwhelmed. You'd have maybe um, the, the last week in October, for example, you have uh, 300 people in hospital in a small town like New Ross and 900 under doctor's care in the community. That's an incredible amount. And that was replicated in every town in Leinster in, in the last week in, in October 1918. I recently heard of two young men in Baltinglass who went around in their community feeding the ill, doing messages, collecting wood for fires, setting them, and even emptying the chamber pots and changing the linens. I've heard of priests doing that in the community as well. Um, those who most likely to catch it were people who dealt with the public for their work. So people, not only like um, doctors and nurses, but also uh, teachers, policemen, postmen, um, priests, of course, uh, and uh, all anybody, shopkeepers, um, many, many, many shop workers uh, became ill with it. Uh, because it hit young adults particularly hard, many adults, uh, many children were orphaned. Uh, families often lost breadwinners and sometimes their home because in those days the home often went with the job for jobs, say, for example, like school teachers or prison warders. 
And for all of these, life was never the same again. Um, these pictures will sadly be mirrored in the coming weeks, but we hope not to the same extent. I interviewed people reflecting back over it at the end of their lives, people in their 90s or their hundreds. And these interviews really show that, that, that families experience not just immediate trauma, but ongoing stresses, changes of economic prospect, for example, as well as maybe damaged health, but also suffering from the terrible losses that lasted for the rest of their lives. They didn't forget, and today's children won't either. Ida, thank you so much. Um, and thank you to all four of our speakers for just the incredible insights that um, you've brought. It's going to be over uh, to our audience for questions and answers. But before I do that, I I'm curious to get uh, uh, the results of our poll. So Ida, while you were trying to get online, we actually invited uh, the audience that's joining us via Zoom to uh, fill in a poll about their own experiences if a family member had been uh, affected by the uh, influenza in 1918, uh, uh, 1919. So I'm hoping that the results of that poll, oh, there we are. So um, I, I hope that everybody can see this. So the question was, did any of your relatives become ill or die during the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, uh, misleadingly known as the Spanish flu? Uh, eight people said yes, 21 people said no, and 33 people said they didn't know. So thanks to everyone who participated uh, in that. I was listening to Michael D. Higgins um, address the nation, if that's the right word, on drive time last night. And he was talking about, I think he said it was an uncle who had died um, uh, of, uh, of the flu. Uh, anyway, it's a very sober reminder and all four talks have been, as I say, absolutely fantastic. Our audience, those of you who are joining us, that we've got hundreds of people who are joining us um, uh, online. It's fantastic that you're all with us. If you would like us to ask any questions, please, there's a Q&A uh, form you can fill in at the bottom of Zoom. And if you're uh, on uh, uh, joining us via Facebook, uh, you can also send us questions and we'll try and select a few. But just to kick things off, we've picked sort of three at random. The first, is from Noel Smith, a former TV producer, a Trinity graduate in electrical engineering. And his question, and I think Luke, this is gonna be one for you. Um, as some supermarket products are radiated to prevent decay, is there any radiation, ultraviolet, even mild radioactive or whatever, which will kill or neutralize uh, this virus? So don't answer, Luke, just yet. We'll come back. To, I'm going to take three questions and then we'll go back across the panel. But I suspect that's not going to be one Brendan's going to want to attempt. So, so that one uh, it's definitely for Luke. Uh, the next one about is a timescale one. It's from Terry Neal, who's a great friend of Trinity and the Trinity Longroom Hub. And his question is, what key things will determine the timescale of us getting back to some semblance of normality. Now, that is one for you, Luke, but I actually think everybody might want to reflect a little bit on that coming from their various perspectives. And our third question uh, tonight is from Regina King in Mayo. Um, and she's saying, all of our panelists are educators. How are you finding the transition to teaching virtually? 
So that's definitely one for everybody. But Luke, can we start with you, um, yep. Michael's question uh, about uh, uh, is there radiation or uh, ultraviolet light that can help kill? Haven't we got a, a new robot developed in Trinity, which you called we Robot do. Violet? That's a good, yeah. that's a good plug, Jamie, do indeed, yeah. I mean, the truth is it's quite a fragile thing when it's outside the body, you know? It's a little little bag of fat, really, you know. And what that means is soap and water kills it for definite. So does alcohol, over 60%. That dissolves the fat, you know, and the virus dies. So there's very straightforward ways to kill it. And UV light kills it for definite. So even sunlight will kill it, <clears throat> which is one reason why you want to be going outdoors, by the way, because you're less likely to pick up the virus outdoors because of the sunlight. Um, and that question's a great one. And that robot, Jane, you're right. They're going to start zapping things with UV light you know, surfaces, and that works very well. So, so that's a very straightforward way to kill the virus. Secondly, just today, actually, again, you wouldn't believe the speed of these things. People have looked at what happens in the fridge. So if you, let's say you have some foodstuffs that have got the virus on it, stick it in the fridge because it doesn't like four degrees to centigrade either, you know, that kind of kills it too. So pretty fragile thing outside the body, I guess, is the, is the thing to say. Um, Ter Terry's question, and of course, we know Terry very well, and he, he, we, him, him and me had a couple of chats lately, actually, on, on the whole issue. Um, his question is, how long is it going to last? We don't know, Terry. That's the sad thing. I mean, us scientists hate not being able to answer questions, you know? And yet, we have no idea how long this is going to go on for. The Chinese are telling us they're getting back to normal, it seems, you know? And shops are reopening, and life is somewhat normal. And it took them, what, three or four months to get to that point. But they were very draconian, you know? So we don't really know. The, big, the next big advance is going to be testing people who've had the infection for antibodies. Because once you know how many people have been infected and got over it, those people are now fine. They're not infectious anymore. Um, they won't spread it. They themselves are healthy. They should be allowed to go back to work and go back to a normal life in many ways. And in fact, the Chinese did that. They gave people a special QR code on their iPhones to say, I'm now better. I've got over it, you know. So maybe in the next two to three months, we'll see that begin to emerge. And then we'll begin to see the first signs of things going back to normal. Thanks very much, Luke. Um, just on the time frame, I don't know, Ida, do you want to come in and talk a little bit more about the, the time frame 100 years ago? And then if we want to go back in a time further uh, uh, to the Middle Ages, obviously, Jake and Brendan can, can chime in. But, but Ida, do you want to comment on that time frame question? Yeah, um, it's something that's intri intriguing me because I suppose global travel has changed and yet so much global travel has now been suspended that we've, uh, you know, we're, we're to some extent back in 1918. Uh, the Spanish flu emerged in, in, in the spring of 1918. Here in Ireland, we got it at the end of May, really, the first cases began to emerge. Uh, we had three waves of it, uh, um, um, a wave that was seen as quite mild, which was in the summer of 1918. Of course, it wasn't only as a flu they thought it was a plague of some time, kind that came out of the war because they were expecting some terrible plague to come out of the war um, uh, it went that went away uh, didn't cause too many deaths mainly affected the northeast of the country uh, then it came back a really severe rotten wave in October through December 1918 spread uh, very um, th there's a spike in the deaths about a, a fortnight or a week to a fortnight after people uh, go out to celebrate the um, end of the first world war which is one reason why I was very vocal about calling for, for a St. Patrick's Day to be called off. And then it came back, it died down again, December, January, and came back again in February through April 1918. And the deaths, go down very suddenly in April 1918 here. But there is a third, uh, fourth wave in um, uh, up closer to the Arctic and also in South America in 1920. 
uh, but here most of the deaths took place over 10, 11 months. Thank you, uh, Ida. Maybe we'll move to that third question about the whole experience now of, of, of educating online. Brendan, you're obviously teaching at the moment and teaching literally the plague uh, this week. Do you want to share some of your experiences and then we'll come to our other speakers just for just your sense of what it's like now to educate online? Can you unmute yourself, Brendan, or will somebody unmute Brendan? That Thank would you. help. Thank yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, Jane. Um, absolutely, it's it's been a very kind of strange experience for for all of us. Everyone involved in in education is kind of struggling, I think, to find new ways of 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 doing things. Um, teaching this this text, I found very kind of. I suppose very strange because I, I've taught this text for for a few years um, and uh, and I've talked about it as a kind of response to the Black Death uh, every every time um, and I never expected I, I've always tried to highlight other aspects of the poem that people might find relevant um, but but I, I never expected this uh, this aspect of the the the, the text to become uh, relevant. And I think it's it's kind of clear when when you you look at what what students are kind of saying uh, studying it that it's actually kind of a quite a I think a frightening text for students to read. It's it's a, a kind of a I feel very strange even about asking students to read it at the at the moment because they are having such um, strong responses. Um, and we do, we do a lot of work on kind of discussion boards and that kind of thing, which is a good way for people to kind of express that uh, and talk about it um, and express, you know, some of that sense of how this kind of taps into a wider sense of, of, of fear and, uh, and, and concern. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. It's been a very, very strange uh, experience over the last while. Jake, I know, is, is on sabbatical, so you maybe haven't been doing, uh, uh, I, I don't know, Jake, are you teaching? at the moment? Uh, yeah, actually, I, um, I, I gave two lectures last week that were sort of interrupted by um, business, business as usual. And um, it's, it's a completely different experience to try to sort of adapt what is usually imagined to be a very physical experience in class. I was like in classes to uh, sort of like the opening night of a theater production. You get like one shot of performing that and seeing how it goes. Uh, but on an, on, in an online forum, virtual cues and ticks of people in the room are very different and, and who you see and how you see is different. But um, I'm, I'm no stranger to technology uh, in, in, the, in the classroom. And, and I think this is, um, uh, crisis teaching. I think a lot of folks are uh, saying, oh, this is a great time to think about what it means to do like online learning. Well, uh, actually, we're in the middle <laughs> of crisis teaching and people are picking up tools the best they can. Um, and when a crisis happens, then you have to rethink what connections you do have, what skills you do have, and, and mostly um, starting with the communities that are in your room, right? The students who who are going to be determining how you interact with them. So, I think I think it's a, just a matter of um, listening to students on in a in a classroom way on what they need, where they are, what they actually have access to, whether they have access to internet or not, um, uh, whether they uh, have uh, are even in the same time zone now uh, uh, or not. So all those different things pull in differently. And uh, 
uh, allow for even uh, forums like this. And I'm guessing that some folks uh, watching now might be tuning in to the Long Room Hub for the first time um, simply because it's a virtual event. So, yeah. Yep, absolutely, Jake. I don't know, Luke or Ida, or will we move on? I don't know if you, Ida, do you want to, I'll put or, your hand, or Luke, you, go Luke and then I'll come back to Ida. Yeah, just, just quickly, Jen, I mean, remember our poor old graduate students. So, um, mm -hmm. I mean, people cannot do work in lab. All the labs are shut down, which is appropriate, by the way. I'm not saying they should be open. But what that means is if you're a PhD student, you can't go into a lab and do experiments for your project, you know? So they're all stuck at home. So I've got like eight of them who I supervise, you know, stuck at home. And, and they can only do so much writing and reading. They are, so, I mean, like many walks of life, I suppose, they want to get back into the action, you know, and get back into labs and do more experiments. So I feel a bit sorry for them in a way. So, so let's not forget the graduate students in science either, because they can't actually do experiments at the moment. Yeah, and look, many of them are actually though volunteering and sort of going literally onto the front line as well, or or, or being very active in 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 obviously any way that they can. And absolutely, you know, Jen, a couple of mine have volunteered to do testing because obviously these yeah. are very good in a lab, you know. And yeah. for the virus, it's quite straightforward. If you're a molecular biologist, immunologist, it's easy to do. So two of my people up in James is now as we speak uh, helping with the testing. So we may see more of that, you know, because if we want to ramp up the testing, we'll need bodies to actually yeah. physically do the testing and graduate students will be a perfect resource for that actually. Yeah. Ida, can I ask you how you're coping teaching at the moment? Again, you'll need to be unmuted. Great. Okay. Um, well, I uh, had developed a kind of a pandemic relationship with, with my students at the beginning of each, each lecture before we went um, remote. I had uh, brought in a big packet of wipes and of hand sanitizer to try and kind of raise their awareness of it. And I think they thought I was barking, but I think they probably get the point now. But once we went off uh, offline, we, uh, we, we had four hours to literally pack up uh, our cars uh, with everything we could that we were going to need for the next next few months and we're allowed back into college uh, provided we, we ring and get in but our college reacted really really quickly to uh, we're a small college so we could react really quick, quickly in Kyla College uh, to up tech and to improve the tech the tech but I find I'm doing an awful lot of uh, pastoral care and that the students are actually doing pastoral care for me as well because of what I researched, they know that it's stressful. And um, so that I'll get constant phone calls after lectures. Um, I do the, the, the lectures uh, with a PowerPoint with audio over it and then set up a forum so that they interact with it. And I'll get lots of emails and uh, from a surprising amount of them. And then some of them already have, um, you know, people who are sick from this. So we have to be cognizant. And I took the decision to not do it contemporaneously so that they could cope with what they have to cope with in normal life as well. Things like, you know, teaching their own children, um, you know, because a lot of people have now become primary school and secondary school um, teachers as well as students and lecturers at the same time. Absolutely, Ida. I've got two specific questions for, for Luke. Uh, so if we can, Luke, if you wouldn't mind answering these. The first one is from Marcus Beresford. And his question is, given the speed of spread of COVID-19, are there any grounds for believing it will burn itself out more quickly and immunity will develop more quickly than in previous plagues? So that's the first one. The second is from Donal O'Callaghan from Facebook. His question is, uh, will the medieval approach uh, quarantine continue until an effective vaccine is developed? Luke, would you... Yeah, absolutely, Jane. Happy to answer both of those. It's a, they're both great questions, by the way. 
Yersinia pestis was interesting, the one that caused the plague, you know, we know an awful lot about that bacteria actually. And it was very contagious and spread very, very quickly, much more than probably SARS-CoV-2. And yet that was still able to kill, what were the numbers again, Brendan, half the population or something, you know. So speed of transmission will give rise to increased mortality, obviously. Um, now with this one, I mean, it, it is contagious, there's no question, it can spread quite quickly. And of course, the fact that a really important discovery that was made only about six to eight weeks ago now is that people without symptoms are infectious. That's unusual. With Yersinia, people were absolutely, because plague is still happening, by the way, today, pneumonic plague. So those people always have symptoms when they're infectious. This one's especially troublesome because people without symptoms are able to spread it. And that means it can spread through a population very quickly. Will it burn itself out? Every infection eventually is self-limiting because immunity builds up in the population. Now, sadly, people die in ancient times. Death was the one consequence. The ones who didn't die were the ones who became resistant and then they carried on and they didn't get infected again. That's the essence of the immune system. So if this was that run, eventually immunity would build up in the population and, and current guesses would have been six to nine months kind of time frame there. But of course, we're not letting this run. We're trying to contain it in various ways. So that was yeah. the what, what was the second question, Jane? I forgot. Oh, okay. no, the second one was uh, from, from Donald. Will the medieval approach quarantine continue until yeah. an effective vaccine is developed? Absolutely. So, so you've got to keep this distancing up for definite to stop it spreading, to break the chain. That has to carry on somewhat indefinitely, you might say. But then once we begin to test people for antibodies, we'll know how many people in the community are, have had the disease and are now immune, you know, are protected. And they will be allowed back out into the community. And then we begin to see that rigorous quarantine process being lifted because of that technology. So if, if, if that, that's one good example, actually, where we're in the 21st century, where you can use a very rapid antibody diagnostic test. It takes minutes to do, by the way. You can tell if you're carrying antibodies and that tells you you've, you've had the disease and you've got over it and you're now free to, to roam, as it were. The first people that will be let roam free will be the medical staff, of course. They'll be allowed back into hospitals again. And then we'll watch those for a while to make sure that they don't get reinfected. And then suddenly it'll be the case where everybody will be tested, hopefully, and the, the thing will begin to yield then, you know? Yeah, thanks, Luke. I have a question here um, from Jack O'Sullivan uh, for Jake. Um, and again, uh, good to hear Jake Erickson uh, mention that climate change is uh, still here, uh, but has it temporarily dipped below the horizon of our awareness? And given the urgency of dealing with climate change, will that dip in our awareness reduce our ability to deal with this other crisis? So Jake, that's one very much for you. Although the others should feel free to chime in if they wish, but but Jake, if you wouldn't mind uh, answering that. Yeah, thanks. That's it's it's such a huge question, and it's it's one that's been uh, on my mind, but maybe maybe in a different way. I mean, it's it's been really remarkable with the immediacy uh, uh, that life has ordinary life has kind of changed for us, um, and halted and shifted in so many ways, uh, and and the thing that's clinging in the back of my mind is is why when uh, uh, climate change is such a, a, a present crisis and species depletion is such a present crisis, can we not make such that kind of urgent transformation in that um, as we have for the for this particular um, particular plague-like moment? Uh, on one hand, it's because our lives are immediately threatened, right? There's a sense of immediacy and speed to uh, the disease that we don't seem to notice climate change um, very much. But um, I, I, I don't want to say that the present moment should eclipse the, the kind of climate thinking that we need to. 
um, uh, it seems to me that moments like this are precisely moments that that open up possibilities for thinking differently, um, uh, for thinking about our institutions, that how they inhabit differently. Um, granted, again, we're in a crisis moment, but it, it seems to me that that precisely in these precarious times where we're experiencing rapid shifts, we also need to um, keep practicing our arts of imagination for how our ethical and common life uh, and climatological life could could be different and 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 keep on with that. Um, there's been a lot of magical thinking around climate change on online. A lot of folks have been posting stories about how. Um, pollution has been clearing up or certain dolphins are returning to uh, various rivers and things and, and, and National Geographic ran a great article that in fact a lot of these animal stories just aren't true. Um, there's a lot of wishful thinking about how the planet maybe oh could just heal itself um, but really uh, a crisis moment like this should sort of impress upon us that uh, we can respond collectively, planetarily, to, to such a huge task with, with great imagination, great storytelling, and great science. I think it all needs to be together. Yeah, I want to just pick up on what you just said there about great science and what Luke was saying earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm chair of the Irish Research Council, and um, obviously it's great to see the various agencies come together with a rapid response, but I think that nothing can ever detract from the fundamental investment needed in excellent frontier discovery uh, science, because we're never going to be prepared for moments like this until and, and future-proof Ireland, uh, unless we, we 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 do that. And that investment is uh, extremely uh, critical. And it's a moment like this that we really appreciate that. So, it, you know, I think we just need to make that point clearly. We've got lots of other questions here. So Sarah Meehan, uh, it's a question for you, Brendan. And, and some of these are quite specific. So uh, I can see probably Luke's not going to want to answer this one. But the question is, how would Brendan see trauma and silence operating currently in relation to the pandemic? So trauma and silence. Trauma and silence. Um, that's a... That's a great. That's a great question. Um, one of the things I was I was just thinking there as Jake was um, talking, I was I was trying to kind of gather some of my 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 thoughts about it, and in some way they're they're related to that. Uh, one of the things that comes out sometimes in in plague narratives, um, po poetry. Uh, I don't know if it's it's true in in later pandemics, is a sense that. That, that a plague or a pestilence is somehow purgative, that it is cleansing, that it does something that kind of restores a, a balance. And I think that's kind of coming out in what Jake was saying there about this idea that suddenly the dolphins are, 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 are appearing in the rivers and, and, and all of that. And I suppose one of the, the ideas I, I would have about this is, is my concern that um, that, that some people are being silenced or being excluded or being scapegoated or blamed um, for the, the current uh, crisis. And that, that's one thing that I think is very, uh, very uh, dangerous uh, indeed. Uh, so that, that would be one way. What, one other thing I would just suggest, if, if, if I can take a second just to say, is, is one thing to look out for is I think the way that um, in terms of silence, is the way in which the language of, of pestilence and plague uh, gets transferred to things 
to which it is not immediately relevant. So people talk about uh, an infection of uh, immigration or, or, or a, a sort of a plague of a certain kind of, of behavior. Um, and I think that's a, that's a form of kind of silencing, very traumatic form of silencing as, as well. So I think we're still at quite the early stages in, in terms of Sarah's question. It's a bit too early for me to really think about it, but those would be some things I would look out for. Yeah, Ida, please go ahead. One thing I think we, we really note, uh, note now is uh, in terms of trauma, that we see a lot of people at the edge and we see um, some irrational behaviour or we see uh, people saying, oh, ostrich behaviour, two different things. Like one thing people getting angry for say, oh, for God's sake, this is all being over-egged. And that's a kind of form of ostrich behaviour. But you'll also see people getting far more angry than they would normally. And my daughter was... Um, so looking in the car park the other day and she saw somebody drive their car into a pole and you know you'll see irrational behaviors like that that, sh that express the fear. I think um, a lot of um, people are expressing um, their fear through anger and we just have to be watchful for that and be a little bit kind to them. Yeah and Ida just oh uh, I've got another question for you but please on this one Jake go ahead. Uh, yeah, so, so um, my research leave right now has been on environmental despair and how people respond to, uh, emotionally respond to crises, uh, uh, especially on a planetary level. But um, David Kessler uh, at Harvard Business Review had a really uh, interesting interview about uh, what he called anticipatory grief. Kessler, of course, worked with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief literature. And this idea that um, a lot of people are grieving um, in an anticipatory way for how, for what they might be losing or what they might lose, um, whether anxiety over at losing one's present job, over losing a loved one, and whether or not their grief will be sort of acknowledged in the present. Uh, one of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of clergy and religious professionals right now is asking, how do we do funerals uh, and, and visitations in the midst of something like this where um, uh, pastoral care or social work needs to be done, but also social distancing has to be observed for the sake of each other. And so uh, some of these questions are very present and, and uh, acknowledging that grief is, is a kind of difficult space to hold. Thanks, Jake. Ida, you've got a question here from Brian McGing. What, if any, lasting effects did the Spanish flu have on Irish society? Well, I suppose the memory and the, the full graveyards are the memory, but in terms of um, change or, 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 you know, making uh, health systems improve, um, the report of the Irish Public Health Council, which came to out in November uh, 19, October, November 1919, uh, 19, it didn't directly mention Spanish flu, but, but you could see that um, what had happened was interwoven into the report you know things like we should have more uh, laboratories to diagnose these things we should have a more coordinated health service uh, but ultimately because our um, country was in the middle of a revolutionary period those improvements didn't happen and in fact when I was reflecting on this earlier today there was very little improvement in world, world health services around the world one or two places I think like Canada and New Zealand for example uh, would have um, made improvements in, in their health services afterwards but this is something we really have to learn from you know we can never let the level of critical care uh, beds reduce to what they are now mm. it's something we definitely need not just forget this we need to remember it yeah well it's these lessons learned we're very good at saying that now but when the moment comes 
Um, there's three questions that are actually clustered um, that I'd like to just go through all three and then uh, I suspect it's going to be Luke and Ida but everybody should feel free. So the first one is from uh, uh, Minota McGilligavi, McGillicuddy. If the Americans go back to work on Easter Sunday, as is being suggested at the moment, will that have a backlash across the rest of the world or cause a second surge? So that's the first question. The second is from uh, Paul McCowan. Would Ireland have had a better or quicker success in containing COVID-19 if full lockdown restrictions and, uh, uh, were implemented from day one? That's the second question. And the third question, again, it's related. What is the likelihood, sorry, and it's from uh, um, uh, Tanaya Jorgensen, who's doing a PhD in history here in Trinity. Uh, what is the likelihood of a deadlier second wave in 2020? So, so Luke, can I start with you? And yep. then I may have uh, uh, some reflections here too. I think you've got those pretty quick ones, Jane, I suppose. I mean, what's yeah. happening in America is very frightening, you know? Clearly, Trump has got it so badly wrong. And every time he says something, every scientist puts his head in his hands, you know? And Tony Fauci, who's the head of the uh, infectious diseases part of the NIH, is in despair, really, if you, I've heard off the record, you know? And this business is going back to work on Easter Sunday. I bet the governors of East State will overrule that and prevent that happening. Because it's a big mistake. It's far too early, you know? So, and, and if they did go back to work, God knows what would happen then in terms of further spread and all kinds of problems. So I can't see that really happening. Um, what was the second one? The second one is about if we had responded more quickly. So oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's always tricky because, you see, lockdown is a very serious thing to do because there's all these older people, vulnerable people, get even more scared. So the timing of that is extremely important to get right. And I think the HSE got it right. It was good timing there. And they, they were very sort of cautious. And the numbers so far would agree with that, that they are expecting a surge, but it won't be as high because they introduced lockdown when they did. So that was a good response, I think, overall. Yeah. And what about the likelihood of a deadlier second wave in 2020? Yeah, not, not to worry people, but um, one of the fears now is it'll go to Africa next and it'll start to spread through Africa. And, and there's a real fear of that because the, the health services in African countries is pretty poor, as we all know. And we could see it continuing through Africa and that will continue on through the summer. And that means then when we get to the autumn, there's a, another big pandemic because the African countries are now where the virus is and it'll begin to spread back into Europe again. That's something that health services are very worried about, you know. So now the, the hope would be we get those numbers right down by June, July and the measures that we have in place, we may need to readopt them, you know, maybe in October, November time, you never know. So we don't really know is the answer and it's a moving target that we're going to keep an eye on. Yeah. Thank you, Luke. I don't know if Ida or Jake or Brendan want to come in on any of those. Please, Jake, and then Ida. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, just, just one of the things just briefly is the uh, idea that Trump would open the, the back to the workforce on Easter Sunday um, is a theological script, right? It's, it's a trying to appeal to a certain form of American Christianity that wants to see an economic resurrection, <laughs> essentially. Um, outside of their, uh, uh, outside of this particular dip. So he's, he's definitely um, trying to, I don't know if it's a sort of egoistic messianic complex where he's associating his policies with a kind of resurrection or redemption narrative. Um, but again, it's a kind of magical thinking and a dangerous one at that theologically, politically, economically. Thank you, Ida. 
Um, I think America has crossed a thousand deaths today. Is that correct? But on the lockdown situation, you know, particularly on the on the issue of the the half term issue with people coming back from Italy, um, you know, people called for lockdown. Then uh, we had to we have to this disease has to come in sometime, even if we had tried to shut ourselves off as an island. Uh, and keep all cases out, completely quarantine ourselves. If we were so clued in that we could have done that, that wouldn't have been a good idea. I'm sure Luke will have ideas about this. We had to let it in, but let it in slowly and to stop it spreading through the population too fast. And that's what we urgently need to keep doing, is to keep the social distancing, to let as little pressure on the medical systems as possible keep happening until it's done what it can do. Mm. Thank you. So I'm going to now start to wrap things up just simply because we'll be finished by nine, I promise, or I hope, because there's a final question here for each of our speakers from Lilith Acadia, who's a colleague in the hub. Uh, and it's inviting each of our panelists really to how would you like to see our societies using the uh, uh, crisis of COVID-19 to build a better future. So in other words, what would you like to see come out of this? Um, and I would combine that with just your, if you want the audience to take away one key message, what might that be? I'm gonna go to the panelists, maybe in the order that they spoke. So if I can start with you, Brendan, looking to the future, one key message, what would it be? Well, I mean, I think there's an awful lot of things that we need to uh, do going forward and, and people have touched on them already in terms of our healthcare provision, uh, etc. I suppose just simply the one point that I want to make arising out of uh, what, what I was talking about with the literary responses to uh, plague is to just I suppose to think about the process of ascribing meaning to a, a disease and, and what kind of meanings uh, we want to uh, take from it, because I think that's where I think things can be uh, potentially quite quite dangerous or quite quite hopeful uh, in the future. So I think that's what I would I would say anyway. Thank you very very much, Jake. Yeah, I, I think one of the big takeaways for me right now is that um, we're uh, a far more aware of our interconnected bodies across the planet perhaps than we than we have uh, ever and the meaningful scripts that Brendan sort of was just mentioning often go into apocalyptic language but um, the 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 key takeaway for me I think is asking um, who among us is most vulnerable in this present moment and how does that vulnerability get um, addressed and how does our big thinking <laughs> about an issue like this potentially transfer to how we work together to address uh, ongoing issues whether that be COVID-19 or climate change um, or the various uh, uh, oppressive isms that society deals with on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you Jake. Luke. Yeah, I'd say two things, Jane. First of all, we're moving towards a one-tier health system in this country eventually. It's happened now because they've taken over the private hospitals. When this ends, I bet you the health service will change dramatically and we could move to a one-tier system because the two-tier system has always been unacceptable, you know. So that's the one good thing that's going to come out of it. There'll be no reason for a private system, basically, unless it's fully private. You know? so that's one good thing. The second thing I would say, just a more general point struck me earlier, um, you know, 
the concept of a whole country suffering and the whole world is kind of suffering at the moment, it strikes me, because everybody's worried, everybody's anxious, fears about relatives, older people, all that stuff is in the back of people's minds. The same thing happened during the Vietnam War in America. And that's the reason why they think Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water became the biggest selling album in 1971. It brought great comfort to a whole nation, that album, you know? So maybe one good thing that will come out of this is we'll recognize suffering together. And then we'll, you know, come out of this in a way that will be positive in terms of dealing with that universal suffering that we're all going through at the moment. Yeah, that's a really powerful, powerful message, Luke. I'd say last but not least, Ida. And I should say, Ida, tonight's a very special night for you because tomorrow you're 60. Uh, so uh, well, many happy returns uh, uh, for tomorrow. Um, uh, but if you have uh, one key message for us or thinking to the future, what, what would that be? We definitely need to have universal health care, like Luke said, and we also need to remove the stress in normal times from our hospital staff, staffs who are so underfunded and uh, overworked as they are, and particularly our nursing staffs who are um, underappreciated in so many different ways in our society, but all our medical staff. And I just say good luck to them. Thank you. Yeah. Well, listen, I think we all do, um, uh, Ida. So we've come to the end uh, of our Behind the Headlines. Before I thank our speakers on all of your behalfs again, there's just a couple of announcements. So our next Behind the Headlines will take place on the 7th of April at 7.30. And the topic is climate in a time of pandemic. So it's actually going to be picking up on some of uh, uh, the conversations uh, that we've had tonight uh, with the focus on, on climate. Um, details will be available online along with other events that we're planning over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks. I also encourage you to have a look at our weekly blog. Um, uh, we've got uh, reflections on the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic and we've invited people uh, to speak to that. So this week we uh, have a wonderful blog by our public policy fellow in residence, Mary Doyle, where she talks about that very uh, joined up response we've seen from uh, the state. And it's nice to hear Luke say such positive things, many people saying positive things tonight, but it's very interesting. We work very closely with colleagues at the University of Columbia and they're actually holding uh, Ireland up as an exemplar of how to deal with a crisis uh, in a very uh, respectful and uh, very measured uh, uh, way, uh, which is which is a great credit, obviously, to many many people, including uh, the political leadership and, and obviously our amazing uh, colleagues in the health service. Um, I want to thank everybody uh, uh, this evening. Uh, firstly, I want to thank my own colleagues in the hub. Delivering something virtually is always a challenge, and uh, I, I think tonight we've had our technical challenges, but we've overcome them, which is lovely. Particularly, Ida, I was delighted to see your face uh, appear. Um, but a big thank you to Aoife, Katrina, uh, Francesca. I want to thank everybody in the audience uh, who are joining us from your homes, your bedrooms, your kitchens, your living rooms. Phenomenal to have so many people here uh, tonight. It really is really very, very special indeed. So thank you all for taking the time uh, to tune in and uh, send questions. Uh, above all though, I just want to thank our four panelists. You guys have been absolutely awesome and you really have just given us so much now to reflect on the insight, the passion, uh, 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 the wisdom uh, that you've shared. So on, I don't know how we clap virtually. <laughs>
but a big thank you to everybody. Um, I hope we'll see you again soon. But for now, stay safe and take care, everybody. Good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.